In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome back to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. We are back, baby. It Heck is yeah. so exciting. It was it was a really good hiatus. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really nice to... I mean, I, I would like to say that I avoided politics for the last month, but I definitely <laughs> did not. Um, but it was kind of nice to not have to like develop a an opinion that I need to present to other people about politics for the last month. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it was definitely nice to take the pressure off a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, but we have a very exciting episode and exciting start to a new season of the Perspectrum. Uh, today we are going to start out by talking about, uh, Texas, the Texas power problems and, uh, the causes of it and some of the misinformation and disinformation floating around. Uh, then we're going to very briefly discuss some of the accomplishments, both the good and the bad of the new Biden administration. And after that, we have a super exciting interview. We are joined by former Marine, current delegate for the Virginia General Assembly, and current candidate for governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Delegate Lee Carter. He's, it's a, it's it, an amazing interview. It was you're, an amazing you're interview. You're so lucky that yeah. we got him on this show. <laughs> yeah, we, we really appreciate having him on this show. Um, we're really excited excited to share our interview with him yeah seriously and excited to you're share him it. with our audience exactly yeah 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 because he was he was a fascinating person to talk to yeah for sure not only do we have this great interview to kick off our new season um we're also doing a little bit of a change we are going to also be launching a patreon um so the reason for that is is to try to support some of the costs that go into uh running the show we want to like want to try and, um, you know, if you guys feel like the show's adding value to your life, um, you know, uh, use some of that to, to, uh, support some of the costs of running the show. Um, and so it's, it's, it's super basic at this point. It's just going to be a single tier and you'll get access to some fun, um, stuff specifically. We'll be sharing the resources that we use to make the show and, um, I'll be sharing my notes, which I keep uh, for each show. So you'll have access to kind of behind the scenes information, uh, for the show once you become a patron. Yeah. And, um, not only that, but after we finish shows, we usually like sit around and talk for a bit about just random things. And we're going to be sharing a recording of that video. Uh, so it's, it's more content of us talking to each other about cool stuff, (laughs) which is why you're here. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, so if you feel like contributing, head over to our Patreon um, and and do so. If not, or if you can't, do not worry about it. We're just yeah. happy to have you here and happy to share ideas with you. Absolutely. So, Michael, let's kick this episode off with a nice little uh, depressing note. Uh, let's yeah. hear the COVID numbers. How are see, they doing? See, this is one of the things I've I've been most happy not to have, do, have to do each week. Yeah. Um, so in the world so far, 113 million people have gotten COVID. 
mm. um, which is up from 110 million people last week, or about 3 million new cases this week. Now, we are seeing uh, decreases in the daily new case rate, um, and we've been seeing those since about the first week in January, which is just a really, really excellent sign. Yeah. Um, that being said, at this point, 2.51 million people in the world have, have been killed by the disease, which is up from 2.44 million people last week, which is, is about 70,000 new deaths. Um, and so far in the world, 216 million doses of vaccines have been administered, um, which is about two point, for about 2.8 people out of every 100 people. So, um, yeah, I, we'll now be reporting on the vaccine progress as well because that's a key part of digging our way out of this disease. Um, in the U.S., 29 million people have gotten COVID, which is up from 28.5 million last week. Um, now, we also have seen a declining rate of daily new cases in the U.S., which is, which is also really good news. Um, but so far, we've hit kind of a new milestone um, last week, reaching 500,000 deaths. So at this point, we're at 517,000 people that have died. Uh, which is up from 503,000 last week. So we're still seeing about 2,000 deaths per day. So that, that's definitely an improvement of like the 3,000 plus deaths per day that we're seeing back in December. But it's from the coverage from like the people on my like social media feed, from just talking to people, from my own feelings, it seems like, like it feels like we're rounding the bend on this thing. And we've talked about seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but the fact is that at this point, we're still at some of the deadliest days yeah. in the pandemic ever. Yeah. I think it's really important to note that it's it's absolutely okay to celebrate the fact that cases are going down. Mm -hmm. It's okay to celebrate the fact that there is absolutely a light at the end of the tunnel. But it's important to note that what does all of this mean for what you should do with regard to social distancing? Not a Nothing. damn thing. Yeah, you should continue to social distance. Yep, continue absolutely. to social distance. Continue to wear masks. Continue to limit your time in public as much as you can. Yeah, and also I just want to acknowledge the fact that half a million people in the United States. Yeah, half a million people. Remember when Trump said two hundred thousand would be like an accomplishment, and we all laughed mm. at him because we were like, "Really, two hundred thousand people? That's." That's okay for you. That's acceptable for you. We are at a half a million people right now. Yep. And there has to be a reckoning after this. This this is not okay. And when I say a reckoning, I'm not just saying like we need to, you know, put Trump in our history books as the most terrible president in history. I mean, arguably he is, but the reckoning needs to be we have to be better prepared for the next pandemic. Because yeah. there, someday there is probably going to be another pandemic. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of steps that we need to take in order to be prepared for that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And like, if there's anything good that should come out of this pandemic, it's acknowledging the need to prevent the next one from being as horrific, as intensive, as deadly, and as devastating as COVID-19 has been. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, one slight light at the end of the tunnel also is that at this point, 13.4% of the population 
um, has received at least one dose of the vaccine with about 6% being fully populated. Now, considering like we've had the vaccine uh, starting to be distributed for a couple of months now, that's not awesome. Mm. But so there's still a ways to go. But having 13% of the population at least partially vaccinated is huge um, because like it does afford the lion's share of protection, that first dose. Um, But that being said, also like there isn't yet conclusive evidence on whether a vaccinated person can be a transmitter of the disease. So like it probably doesn't mean any change for your social distancing and masking habits anyway. If you are one of those 13% of people, then you should still socially distance and you should still wear a mask. Um, My wife and my parents are both completely inoculated at this point, which is wonderful, which Mm -hmm. makes me feel so much less anxiety. Um, But they they still need to be very careful. They've still been very careful. And if you are vaccinated, you should be as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's get into it. So Texas, uh, (laughs) not doing so well right now. No, not doing not doing well at all. Although better now than a week ago, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, But one thing I did want to say right at the top of this segment is like, why it should matter to us yeah. because like if you don't live in texas maybe you think that maybe you haven't been paying attention to the news coming out of texas right like maybe you think it's not that relevant to you it's kind of like if you don't live in california why do you care that much about the forest fires except for you know the fact that the whole state was burning yeah um and the reason you should care um is because well kind of two main things i wanted to touch on one the story is becoming more and more common like yeah hurricanes are becoming more significant more severe and more common uh wildfires are more common um like severe cold severe heat are all becoming more common these these rare weather events and that have really dramatic catastrophic impacts are becoming more common so you should care because it might be the kind of thing that affects you directly and the second reason i wanted to say is um that this is um, like a classic story of how unprepared we are for the climate crisis. Yeah. It like this should inspire you through fear or outrage or both um, to be pushing for us to make real progress, to really focus on big ideas on big solutions and and push us away from bad ideas and bad policies as much as possible. Yeah. And I would add the uh, the third reason why I think this is very important is I think that there was kind of this assumption that once the Trump era ended <laughs> that you know Republican arguments or you know political discourse would come back to be grounded more in reality and this should demonstrate that no (laughs) like the way that this has been talked about by republicans in texas and you know and a lot of the country is just so indicative of how detached from reality the elected republicans are Mm -hmm. and how a lot of the propagandists have been so so michael brought up the fact that this is indicative of a larger climate problem climate change. And 
One of the things that seems to be a common talking point on the right, especially among right-wing commentators, right-wing politicians, is this idea that it's cold where I live right now, therefore there's no such thing as global warming or climate change. Yeah. So let's take a step back and actually define what climate change actually means in the context of how it's happening right now and what additional effects that's going to have. So climate change and global warming as it pertains to the current events in a lot of ways are interchangeable. And the reason for that is because climate change is not about just it being really hot many days during the summer. It's about an average increase in the per diem temperature in a year. All right. Mm -hmm. So if the average temperature increases by a certain amount and continues to increase over several years, that is indicative of a change in climate. Now, the important point to make about that is that climate change can also create abnormal weather patterns, which means that you can have instances of intense cold in places that are normally really hot, like Texas, while still seeing a global average increase in the overall temperature. Yeah. And the biggest reason why I want to point that out is because I was I was watching uh, Tucker Carlson, as I do, a huge mm. fan of the show, and <laughs> he was basically making the argument, he was like, oh, well, the Green New Deal has come to Texas, and the good news is climate change is completely fixed now. It's cold. The bad news is nobody can use electricity because of all of the wind power. Mm. It's like literally everything about that was wrong. Like, I'm, I'm not just saying, like, he's wrong on a philosophical level or whatever. He's just factually, factually wrong. So the big thing that has been blamed by Republicans uh, for this outage has been wind energy, has been green energy. Uh, weirdly, a bunch of them have been blaming the Green New Deal, which hasn't even been passed. So I, I don't even I don't even know why that where that talking point came from. But let's. Let's look at the actual facts, because, you know, we like facts on uh, on this here podcast. Pretty, pretty, yeah, that, that helps to inform, you know, reality. Yeah. So uh, PolitiFact compiled a lot of information on this specific topic. And uh, I, I, as Michael talked about at the beginning of the pod, uh, we are going to be sharing resources that we're looking at with you, so I would definitely recommend heading over to our Patreon. Even if you're not a patron, you, you're you still going to be able to look at the resources that we have, so uh, I definitely recommend reading this article thoroughly. But according to PolitiFact, um, there was a shortage of approximately 34 gigawatts of electricity during this uh, during this winter storm. And of those 32 gigawatts, only four of them came from wind energy. Yeah. Four gigawatts out of 34 gigawatts. And on top of that, so it is true that the wind power, the wind turbines, were a, a little bit affected by the frozen temperatures. It is true that there were some that were a little bit affected by that. But two important points to that. Number one, 
The uh, Electric Reliability Council of Texas, uh, which uh, the main people that have been that are um, in charge of monitoring this and uh, um, and uh, overseeing the electrical grid in Texas, uh, they actually predicted that the amount of energy that would be created by the wind power during this winter storm would yield less than it actually did. It actually overperformed the expectations. And part yeah, of that was actually because power. as did the solar power. And part of that with at least the wind is because the wind was blowing so fast because it was a winter storm that even though some of them were frozen and weren't able to spin as much, the ones that were still operating actually were able to yield more than expected. Mm -hmm. And number two, it's possible to winterize that stuff. Yeah. There are various different methods that people use in order to winterize uh, wind turbines, like in yeah. the um, in the in the Midwest where it gets super cold. Like I, I remember when I was living in Iowa, whenever I would drive there, there would be like a thousand wind turbines like throughout uh, all of Illinois. And what they would do is they would basically just put heaters in the wind turbines in order to mm -hmm. make sure that they weren't yeah th that they wouldn't get frozen. But that's that's a huge point here is that. So much of the real story as it, as is coming out more and more is that true lack of preparation more than like any singular failure um, was like the big uniting theme of these power, these deadly power outages. Yeah. Um, shortages of natural gas, which makes up a significant portion of the energy production in Texas. Um, mechanical failures at nuclear plants and coal power plants. Um, uh, failing to winterize um, natural gas pipelines and things like that. Like overall, their supply chain lost about a third of its capacity um, due primarily to failures of traditional um, fossil fuel uh, power plants. But importantly, these failures were not, were not unavoidable. Yeah, they were... They, they were, were completely avoidable. <laughs> yeah. And, and and the thing is, the people in Texas did demand a ton more power than was forecasted, um, than was forecasted by the uh, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which runs like 90% of their grid, but not more power than they had the ability, at least theoretically, to supply. It's a, They demanded about a similar amount of power that they do during the summertime when they're turning on the air conditioning. The problem was that they just were not prepared um, for the extreme weather event. And like, okay, forecasts get it wrong. Like sometimes you're not prepared. But the thing is there were, there were specific reasons why um, they weren't prepared that made, that make this so problematic. And, and the fact is that these types of events these types of rare weather occurrences that we'll have to be prepared for are only going to become more common. Yeah. And it's also important to note that the reason, one of the biggest reasons why they weren't prepared, why um, warnings were not heeded, is because the energy grid in Texas is almost entirely privatized. Mm -hmm. In fact, most of the states in the United States are... Uh, connected to a federal grid, Texas is not. Yes. They have their own grid, and their energy industry is primarily private, privatized. 
Yeah. And one of the important things to note there is not only did that mean that there was absolutely no requirement or no mandate for them to actually winterize their equipment to make sure that people weren't running out of power, but it also means that when this did happen, electric bills skyrocketed. Yeah. Like absolutely skyrocketed. In fact, according to the Washington Post, on the day that there was uh, a meeting of the Public Utility Commission of Texas to discuss um like the raise in energy price uh in energy prices in Texas, uh the wholesale price of electricity spiked 10,000% in Texas. Mm. And there was one there was like there was one bill that actually like hit $17,000. Yeah. And it was common for people to be getting like electricity bills for, you know, thousands of dollars in like the single digits, like two or three or $5,000. Um, so to notice like two sides of that privatization of the utility grid coin. One is that in competition with each other to keep prices down, right? To like keep the cost of electricity as low as possible, companies are, are incentivized to cut corners. To yeah. not invest in thing in costly measures that they perceive as as being protection against unlikely events, and because it's privatized and deregulated and cut off from the rest of the grid, that meant that there was no redundancy in place to help supply in the case of local energy supply failures, like they saw. Um, and then on on to Nathan's point, like then their solution which is, you know, a solution that any first-year economics student would tell you exactly would happen when there's a spike in demand and a decline in supply is a spike in prices. Yeah. Which uh, again, a first-year economics student would probably tell you, well, the reason there's a spike in prices in a market um is like is to to allow supply and demand to reach equilibrium. The problem is when you're dealing with a utility, demand's not going to go down unless people are literally out of power due to rolling blackouts, which is exactly what happened. And supply is not going to go up because they can't just bring on power plants online, right? Like there's a reason they failed. And so like the idea that in a, in a utility like this, there's a, a great market-based solution for yeah. extreme unpredictable weather events that lead to catastrophic failure is silly. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I'm still a capitalist. I still believe in the free market. Me too, uh, in absolutely. Many industries. Yeah. You know, I think that free market in the video game industry is wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, free market in the service industry is wonderful. Uh, free market in the clothing industry. Okay, the clothing industry does need to be heavily regulated because of all the, you know, the slave borderline. Yeah, yeah, the borderline slave labor in other countries. So maybe that's a bad example. Um, but like, there's a lot of industries in which it makes sense to have a relatively free market, you know, with with regulations on what you can do to your workers, what you can get your workers to do, and how much you need to compensate your workers. But there's there's definitely a place for the free market. I'm not a I'm not a socialist or a communist or anything like that. However, there are some industries like healthcare and like energy that provide physiological needs mm -hmm. that people just cannot live without. And if we privatize them for the sake of privatization, which is basically 
the argument that Texas Republicans have been making for why it's so wonderful that their grid is the way that it is, mm -hmm. all you're going to do is benefit a bunch of rich executives at the expense of the people of your state. Yeah. And nowhere is this better demonstrated than in this almost laughably horrific quotation from former governor of Texas and former presidential candidate uh, Rick Perry. He said, quote, Texas would be without electricity for longer than three days to keep the federal government out of their business. Try not to let whatever the crisis of the day is take your eye off of having a resilient grid that keeps America safe personally, economically, and strategically. Your grid, you know, hate to break it to you, bro, but your grid was not safe personally, it was not safe economically, and it was not safe strategically. So he's basically saying that fighting for the free market is worth the 30 Texans that died as a result of this and the millions of Texans that have been without the ability to heat their homes. Yeah. That is Texas uh, elected Texas Republicans. And look, one of the things I want to note, I feel like there are some people that might look at that and be like, well, you know, fuck Texas. Like they, they voted for these idiots. You know, you reap what you sell. No, no, no. That is, I fundamentally reject that. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care what you believe. You deserve to have a government that takes care of you. You deserve to have your home heated. You deserve to be treated with, with dignity. You deserve to not die to not freeze to death in your own home because of a lack of regulation. And, you know, I, that is one of the biggest reasons why I always try to, uh, when I talk about criticisms of the Republican party, I always try to specify elected Republicans because mm -hmm. the people should not pay for what their leaders did. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments. Tips for good. So Nathan, why do we do tips for good every week? Because that's just, the, I mean, that's just the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. Uh-huh, mm. uh-huh. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like that right there, that way. I mean, there are other ways yeah, yeah. in which I don't like it, but that is the way that I actually do like it. Uh-huh, mm -hmm. uh-huh. That makes sense. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Great. Oh, and, and I also like how it makes the world a better place as well. See, that's the way I like it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh -huh, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm what is our that? So what's our tip for good this week? Our tip for the good this week is stop idolizing the personal lives of politicians and start holding their asses accountable. Remember, they're cogs in our machine. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I had to get that in. <laughs> I, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. But like one of the things that I will admit that uh, when I was when I was younger, I was definitely guilty of this. Uh, but one of the things that I've been noticing a lot of is a lot of the the liberal pages that I follow have been posting a bunch of pictures of like you know Joe Biden and Jill Biden holding hands with like captions of "Oh, isn't it so nice to finally have a couple in the White House that actually loves each other?" And it's like, yeah, good for them, you know. I'm glad, like, like. From a human perspective, I can look at any couple that appears that seems to be happy and be mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's great. Good for them. I'm glad. But uh, 
I'm more worried about the fact that uh, I have trouble affording healthcare every month. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm more worried about my paycheck and the paycheck of other people and minimum wage. I'm more worried about COVID-19 and like, it's not, that this, this, this isn't to say that you can't necessarily do both. Sure. But I feel like when we focus so much on the perception of a politician's, you know, personality or personal life as being, you know, virtuous and wonderful, mm -hmm. like that we lose sight of the important part of politics, which is what are their policy positions? What are they planning on actually doing? Now, I, one quick caveat to that. If they're doing something truly horrific, like they've committed yeah. crimes, then yeah, we should care about that and we should remove them. Yeah. But I mean, if it's just about like how good their relationship is, I mean, you know, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton probably didn't have the best romantic yeah. relationship, but you know, we, we had a surplus under him and you know, at the same time there was also the crime bill passed and those, those two things are much more important to me than the fact that he probably was in a loveless marriage. I really don't care about that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And like, I, I mean, I empathize with people wanting to revel in the fact that we have a much more stable and yeah. like normal person, but like yeah. focus on the fact that he is a leader who can actually like rally people together and lead. Yeah. Like there, there are components of his, of Biden as a person, um, of Dr. Jill Biden as a person that, that yeah. matter, yeah. um, to the jobs that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. But like whether they're a cute couple, whether their dog is, is a rescue dog. Yeah. You know, not, not like if we want to care about that stuff, care about it after they're, they're out of office. They can be yeah. celebrities then for now yeah. we've got, we've got work to do. We've got to hold them accountable for the things that they promised to do. And, um, and, the more we are enthralled with their personalities, the more distracted we are from the things that really matter. Yep. And that's tips for good. So for our, for our second segment, we wanted to very quickly kind of go through some of um, Biden's accomplishments or uh, detriments, I guess, in his first few days in office. Yeah. And one of the things that is important to note is that it's pretty early in his presidency yeah. at this point. It's been 34 days as, as of the time of recording. So I would say it's kind of, it's hard for me personally to come down on one side or the other as to whether or not I would consider him to be an impressive president or a good president. Yeah. Um, but there Way are definitely a yeah, but there are definitely a few areas in which we can look at in order to evaluate. And I would say that there is definitely a lot of good to be said and a few yeah. things that in which he's very much lacking. Um, and the, so and the sooner and more often we evaluate, like the better, because yeah. when like the president pays attention to public opinion, right? Like <clears throat> that does help guide them. And so if people aren't paying attention, if people are just resting on their laurels and relaxed because they don't, we don't have a lunatic in office. Um, like that's not going to do it. That's not going to cut it. We're not going to get the policies. Yeah. Yeah. Like the bar should be higher than Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump was terrible. He was yeah. horrible. He was awful. He was a sociopath. 
and he had almost almost every single one of his policy positions were just wrong they were mm-hmm. just stupid uh we can't just settle for better than trump yeah if we want things to actually get done so let's talk about some of the merits of the biden administration so far the yeah. the first one that i want to talk about and this i would say is probably the best thing that biden has done so far in my opinion is we are no longer supporting genocide in Yemen. Uh, he ended our support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. So we've talked about this a little bit on the pod before. Basically, we were selling arms to Saudi Arabia to go into Yemen and basically commit genocide. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernie Sanders in the Senate and uh, Ro Khanna in the House introduced uh, invoking the war, uh, the war Powers Act in order to end our support for it. It passed the House, it passed the Senate, and Donald Trump vetoed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with the stroke of a pen, uh, Biden ended our support for it, which means we are no longer supporting genocide. I think that is absolutely wonderful. I am so glad that Biden did that. I give him all the credit in the world for doing that. Another another um, like benefit of the Biden administration so far is that his administration has really hit the ground running um, with response to like the COVID crisis, um, at least with response to like getting vaccines distributed. Like it's it's easy to write off some of the work that's been done um, because we want it to go faster. Like we want yeah. 100% vaccinated, not just 13. Um, but like his, his pledge was to get 100 million Americans vaccinated in the first 100 days. And it's been 34 days as of the uh, the the 23rd of February, and so far 45.2 million people have had at least one dose of the vaccine. So, yeah. like 45 million people so far, that's that's a pretty impressive yeah. accomplishment. Like, absolutely, we shouldn't absolutely. undersell that. And and Biden's approval rating at this point definitely does reflect that. So yeah, yeah definitely a lot to a lot to be said about. Um, that particular handling of COVID. Uh, one thing that I would like to point out as kind of a, a bit of a criticism I would have of the Biden administration, which I've been, I've gone back and forth on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of the walking back of the $2,000 checks. Yeah, for sure. So this is one that I kind of went back and forth on because the calling of the $2,000 check happened originally when the proposal on the table was $600 checks. Mm-hmm. And the $600 checks were put out there. So the idea behind it is the 600 plus the um, 1,400 would equal 2,000 and all. Mm-hmm. However, even after those checks went out, he was in Georgia rallying for Warnock and Ossoff. Mm-hmm. And he was saying basically... You want two thousand dollars? You know, send these people to send these people to to Washington, and that was after after the six hundred dollars had already put out there. Yeah. So I I just I don't I I don't know if I buy that excuse anymore. I think that he walked it back. He also like he had kind of given us the expectation that that COVID relief package would be passed like mm-hmm. like that like yeah. within the first week within the first week or two and that just didn't happen now i don't think that was ever going to happen sure and he has limited ability to like control and he has limited ability to do that you know it is important to note that a lot of this is 
like within the legislative session. A yeah, lot of this sure. is, you know, being tied up in the legislature. So in that regard, it might not be his fault that it's taking a while, mm -hmm. but he shouldn't have made that promise. Yeah. Yeah. And on the $2,000 check thing, like I personally, well, I kind of, I've kind of, I'm a, um, I have two things to say on that. First of all, people still need $2,000. Yeah. Like, like the $600 was fine and not great, but fine. But it was two months ago now or a month for some people yeah. that have just gotten their checks. Um, so like <laughs> we're still in the throes of these things. Unemployment is still at record levels. Like people still need that $2,000. So even if it was, even if you, he could have walked it back, he shouldn't have. And second, Trump's administration did that. The $600 were not part of Biden's administration. So if you're going to yeah. promise something pro like for your administration, do that. Yeah. The thing is like, if you, great. Like if you add the $600 plus what we got back in April, you know, Biden doesn't have to give us anything because that was one for $2,000. It's like, yeah. it's just no, not, a good point. it's just, you talk about what you're going to do and then go do that. Yeah. So no, I, so I don't I don't really give him quarter as far as and and also just like from a negotiating no. position from every perspective starting out like promising two thousands and then literally starting the conversation at fourteen hundred is just a lose lose. Yeah. Strange day when Michael's giving Biden less quarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, another another shortcoming that I would say is uh, with regard to foreign policy specifically Afghanistan. Uh, I never liked the fact that Biden had not committed to ending endless war, mm -hmm. like to pulling out of Afghanistan. And and the thing is, I don't like the fact that the way we seem to treat endless war is basically a, this is the status quo and you need to give us a reason, like you need to prove to us why we need to leave. Mm-hmm. When it comes to to foreign interference, to us interfering in foreign countries, we're the ones that need the justification. Mm -hmm. Like the burden of proof should be on us to say why we need to stay there. Yeah. The burden of proof should be on the the Pentagon, the, the, the president to come out and say, all right, here is our mission. Here is what we are trying to accomplish. Here are a list of things we're planning on accomplishing. When we finish these things, mission accomplished, we're coming home. Yeah. And they have not done that. Yeah. So Yeah, the common argument against like pulling troops out of various regions is well, as soon as you do that, the political stability in the region will, you know, collapse. Or like there will be terrible consequences to us pulling out. And, I wonder why it was unstable in the first place. Well, so so that's a huge thing. But unfortunately, it it is, you know, like <laughs> we've, we destabilized in a lot of cases. Um, but also, like, I think I think your point about burden of proof still holds up. Like, it should still be an active point of a question and justification and proof seeking that we're there. You know, like if we're in Afghanistan every year or every, you know, budget appropriation, we should look and see, like, have we made progress towards a goal? Do we have a goal? Are we actually, like, providing support for the region? How do we take steps to make that region self-sufficient? That's huge. Like, the fact yeah. that we just have this this willingness to just stay, like, leave our military in place means that our plans are not focused on trying to strategically enable the population there to govern yeah. themselves, which and is you know, just no should not be our role. 
and, and you know, I'm no idiot. I'm not saying that like they're, you know, we should do it without a plan. Sure. Yeah. But what I'm saying is the plan should be pull them out. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Another like, and to be fair, like we are talking about some of the shortcomings here. Like Biden has done, yeah. like he signed a bunch of executive orders early on. Absolutely. He's, he's done a lot of, of what he could do. And he ended the trans military ban. That yeah. was huge. Yep. He ended like the Muslim ban, the Muslim travel ban. Yeah. Um, he's done like a lot of things that he could do early on, um, which is really good. But he also hasn't done some things <laughs> yeah. that that he should have done. And that's and it's really important to talk about these things. Like, okay, so like he he did some executive orders on immigration, which is great. Like he established a task force to reunite migrant children that have been separated from their parents. That's awesome. He restored like being able to asylum in the United States, whereas the Trump administration was requiring um, people to like stay in like either Mexico or Canada or not come into the United States for asylum. Um, and he's requiring agencies to do like a thorough review of policies to make sure there are, there are, there are no policies set up to uh, as barriers to immigration. But at the same time, he promised to like totally stop deportations. Um, and he hasn't. There have been hundreds yeah. of deportations under his administration. And like, yeah, like he did, he did sign an executive order to stop um, deportations that was then um, like there was an injunction put on it by a judge, but the injunction didn't require that they schedule deportations. So there's kind of like a loophole there where they didn't necessarily have to be deported. Yeah. So like, I don't know. It seems like he could have gotten creative there. Yeah. And one of the last things that I, I want to mention as kind of a criticism of the Biden administration at this point is with the stroke of his pen, he could eliminate student loan debt. Mm. Like uh, there, there are um, a lot of legal experts have laid out the case for basically why um, that is within the president's power. I would definitely encourage you all to take a look at, take a look at those arguments. I think you know, legal experts can probably explain that better than I can. Uh, however, it, it's true that he could eliminate student loan debt. And Chuck Schumer, who I have no love for, but Chuck Schumer called upon President Biden to, through executive action, eliminate $50,000 in lo student loan debt, which would be huge, massive. And not only is Joe Biden not willing to eliminate student loan debt with the stroke of his pen with a, an executive order for $50,000. He said, not only does it need to be go, does it need to go through Congress, which is, I, I don't even know if that's, that's even possible, even with us controlling uh, the, the house and the Senate. Yeah. But he also said, no, 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 only eliminate $10,000. Mm. And look, to be clear, if, Congress does pass a uh, student loan forgiveness up to $10,000 and Joe Biden signs it. That's still going to be huge. Yeah. That's still going to be important. That's still going to be good. But just how much Joe Biden start comes to the negotiating table, like having already after, given away. Yeah. He, he's already given away the, he's already, he's already given away the farm at this point, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So it's it's just I feel like 
I had so many criticisms of many of the Democrats that ran in the Democratic primary. And I feel like we just went with the most conservative one. Mm -hmm. And and that has really been showing in what he's been fighting for and what's ultimately going to get accomplished. Now, I do want to make one final point on this. And that is the fact that I, I, I maintain right now that I am withholding uh, overarching judgment about the Biden administration until I see more stuff happen. Because, you know, it's a lot to ask for everything to change within like the first two months. Mm. Uh, things take time. But I will say that I will be impressed with the Biden administration if they pass $15 an hour minimum wage. If mm -hmm. they're if that gets passed under the Biden administration, I will be impressed with the Biden administration. Yeah. All right. That right now, that's my my big my big threshold. So I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't have huge hopes for the Biden administration. Never wanted to be proven wrong more in my entire life. <laughs>
in in the in the airlines that came out showing that he had actually changed his plan. Originally, he was planning on flying back on Saturday, and then mm-hmm. at the last minute, he changed it to Thursday, which would have happened after he got all of this backlash. So that was a lie. And mm-hmm. he later admitted, like, yeah, yeah, that was okay, that was a lie. That was a complete yeah. lie. Also, like um, <laughs> also one of his quotes, he was like, he 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 said this quote. All of us who are parents have responsibility to take care of our kids, take care of our family. That's something Texans have been doing across the state. Basically equating <laughs> him fleeing to Mexico with the people that are like, you know, building fires in their garages to try to stay warm, to like keep their kids warm, which is also a terrible idea. No one build fires inside. But yeah. like, <laughs> he's like, I think I, I think I just figured out how we're going to get Mexico to pay for the wall. You know, how Mexico, you pay for the wall. You'll keep Ted Cruz out of Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, Uh, and and then, you know, after he, uh, after he basically like was caught in a lie and then admitted that he was lying, um, he goes on his podcast and he, you know, throws this fit about how media has been all mean to him. And he said, quote, just don't be assholes. Just, yeah. you know, treat each other as human beings. Have some degree of modicum of respect. Degree <laughs> modicum of respect? You're the senator and you just left and then you lied about it. Yeah. Like, yeah. And he's blaming like social media he's like he said listen we're in a strange time where twitter's been going crazy and the media is going crazy and there's a lot of venom and vitriol that i think is unfortunately frankly on both sides he's like it's it's so funny to like watch him try to to whip out all these like republican talking points as defenses and like everybody's like nah i don't think that's it (laughs) yeah oh it's so good and like yeah we're living in a strange time texas is freezing over Maybe you should try to do something about that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> congratulations to Teddy Cruz for being our ass hat of, of the, the week. week. All right. Today we have a very special guest. He is a former Marine for the United States military, a current delegate for the Virginia General Assembly representing the 50th District and a candidate for governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, Delegate Lee Lee Carter. Uh, Mr. Delegate, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Um, so I do wanna give you a chance to talk about your run for governorship, but I do think it is important to discuss uh, your your time as a delegate, the work that you've done so far. Uh, So I wanna start by asking about your work on abolishing the death penalty in Virginia. Um, So you are a, uh, you're a chief patron of, I believe two different bills in the the House of Delegates to abolish the death penalty. So it's safe to say you're not a huge fan. So yeah. Yeah, this is uh, the second year in a row that I've put in a bill to abolish the death penalty. Uh, Last year when I did it, uh, there was, um, well, there was some weird procedural issues that that crept up. So um, what happened last year was uh, I put the bill in, 
and I got a statement from, I believe it was the Department of Corrections saying that there was no budget amendment needed. And then, uh, so, you know, I proceeded without a budget amendment. And then um, after uh, the deadline for budget amendments, I got uh, another statement from uh, planning and budget saying um, that actually it would cost $70,000 to not kill two people. Um, and therefore my bill uh, could not proceed because it needed a budget amendment and did not have one since it was after the deadline. Uh, so it was all very weird what happened last year. Um, and you know, this is one of the most infuriating ways to lose a bill yeah. is, is, you know, with, with, uh, different departments disagreeing about whether or not you need a budget amendment. Hmm. Uh, but I went ahead with it again this year uh, and put in the budget amendment for it. Uh, and then about a month after I put the bill in, all of a sudden the, the governor makes a, an announcement that he's sending a bill down that is exactly <laughs> identical to my bill. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, I looked, uh, I think there were 31 words different out of 1700 lines of text. Uh, so, uh, well, you were a primary contributor then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there's really only one way to abolish the death penalty mm -hmm. when, yeah. uh, you know, the specific changes that you need to make in the code. Um, so of course it was going to be identical. Um, but, uh, yeah, had my bill, uh, what we call incorporated into the new mm -hmm. one. Um, and so now I'm a chief co-patron on, uh, the one that has passed the house, uh, mm -hmm. which is being carried by Mike Mullen. Uh, the Senate has sent another identical bill over to the House. Um, for, I forget who the chief patron is on the Senate side. Mm. Um, but the important thing is, you know, Virginia has killed more of its people than any other state. Mm. Yeah. Um, Texas does it faster, uh, but we had a head start of about 200 years. Yeah. And, um, you know, both chambers have now passed a bill saying that we're not going to execute people anymore. Um, so we've got to cross the T's and dot the I's and get this thing done, but uh, Virginia is not going to execute people anymore. Yeah. And that is just, uh, I mean, if you had told me four years ago that yeah. I would be the chief co-patron on the bill abolishing the death penalty in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I would have called you a liar. Yeah. <laughs> for, for as big as my hopes were, I would have called you a liar. I would not have thought it was possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely a huge accomplishment. There's, there's one question that I did have about that though. Uh, so there were some, there were some Republicans that like supported semi the ab abolition of the death penalty with a provision that would require a uh, a mandatory sentence of life without parole uh, for people that would normally get the death penalty. So why is it that Democrats found that uh, to be an unacceptable amendment? Well, I think that amendment was over on the Senate side. Uh, yeah. I don't remember that amendment being put in on the House side. So, okay. um, you know, when, when we're in session, especially before crossover, we've just passed crossover. Um, but for anything that happens before crossover over on the Senate side, uh, that hallway between the House and the Senate might as well be 100 miles wide. I mean, mm. I have no idea what's going on over there. Um, <laughs> everyone in the House is just so laser focused on getting things through the House and sending the best product possible over to the Senate. Right. Um, and so whatever the Senate does with Senate bills, that's okay. none of my concern. You know, gotcha. the, the differences get worked out um, at the very end of the session when we're doing uh, what's called conference reports. Uh, mm. But up until then, it's just kind of a black box. Good bills go into the Senate. And nothing comes <laughs> <out>. <laughs> well, congratulations uh, on that accomplishment. That's huge. We, we've advocated for that 
for a long time on this show. So happy to see that you're you're yeah. making waves Thank in that you. regard. Thank you so much. Yeah, and you know the the debate around it, um, the Republicans and my predecessor Jackson Miller was one who loved to do this. The, the Republicans love going into gory details about mm. these grisly murders yeah. and and just making an absolute spectacle about it. Yeah. But this bill is not about anybody that's been murdered it's about yeah. whether or not the 140 people in the general assembly are going to kill anyone yeah and you know you can put as many safeguards as you want in the procedure you can put as many hurdles as many extra steps as, as you can possibly think of but there is no system that is perfect yeah. And the yeah. only way to guarantee that the 140 people in the general assembly don't murder someone is yeah. to not execute anyone yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, that my is the most is, concise version of that argument I've ever heard. Yeah. That was perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, my stance has always been if, if even one innocent person is executed, which, yeah. you know, like you said, no system is perfect. That's mm -hmm. just one too many. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about right to work. Uh, I know that you're a strong supporter of ending Virginia status as a right to work state. Democrats have been in charge for at least two years now. Why the hell hasn't it happened yet? <laughs> so first I wanna talk about what that is. Yeah, um, yeah. There, are, there are two categories of states um, when it comes to this law. There are so-called right to work states, which is an intentional misnomer. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are free bargaining states. Mm -hmm. um, and, and right to work states are only allowed because of a 1947 anti-worker law that passed through Congress called Taft-Hartley that allowed states to adopt these provisions. And what they do um, is they say that a union has to negotiate on behalf of non-members and the union is prohibited by law from getting compensation from them. So the law in a right to work state literally forces the union to do free work. Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, in free bargaining states, uh, the, the union has the option of seeking compensation from those non-members. Um, and in some states, they also uh, have the ability to say you have to be a member um, if you're going to be in the bargaining unit. Mm -hmm. right? uh, mm -hmm. but, but either way, whether it's uh, a security clause or it's a compensation agreement, either way, uh, the, the, the key principle is that one of the things a union can bargain for is compensation for the work that it does on behalf of non-members. That is illegal in Virginia. And that's what I'm trying to change. So there are two states where Democrats have trifecta control and we still have right to work laws on the books. They are Virginia and Nevada. Mm. Both of those are very, very recent pickups, mm. right? Um, but we're seeing in New Hampshire what happens when Republicans get trifecta control of a state. The very first thing they do is put a right to work law in place. Mm. And they do that because they know you know, even if they get some pushback, even if they lose a couple of seats now, five years, 10 years down the road, uh, you know, wages are lower, workplace safety standards are lower, their corporate donors are happier, they're giving more money to the Republican Party, and voter turnout is lower. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people's quality of life and life expectancy is lower in a right to work state. And it only takes a few years for that effect to, to you know, trickle out to the public. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've put in the bill to repeal right to work and make Virginia a free bargaining state. There's, I think, 23 or 24 free bargaining states already. Hmm. Um, so I, I've put in the bill three years now. 
Uh, and the first year I put it in under then Speaker Cox, uh, he sat on the bill until the last meeting of what was then the Commerce and Labor Committee, sent it over to the committee when it was too late to get it on a docket, and then mm -hmm. it died at crossover. Hmm. Last year, under Democratic control, it was sent to the Labor and Commerce Committee where it got a vote, but then it was sent to appropriations where it didn't belong because it does not impact the budget. Mm. And it died without a hearing. Mm. And then this year I put it in and we are back to what happened the first year, right? So Speaker Fillercorn sat on the bill, did not send it to a committee until the very last meeting when it was too late to get it on a docket, hoping that it would die at crossover uh, without a recorded vote. Uh, but, you know, there is one... Uh, there's one legislative maneuver that is constitutionally protected, uh, and it is for precisely situations like this, where a bill is not getting a fair hearing. Uh, you know, the people of Virginia voted on this in 2016 and rejected right to work. Mm -hmm. uh, the Democratic Party nationally has it in our platform uh, that it says explicitly right to work laws are wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, the Democratic Central Committee of Virginia, the governing body of the Democratic Party here in Virginia, unanimously said that we need to repeal that law. And yet with Democrats in control, we can't get a hearing. So I brought a motion on the floor to discharge. And uh, that's roughly equivalent to detonating a nuclear weapon on the floor of the house. <laughs> so, uh, there's, there's a few people that are not too happy with me. Um, but, you know, this bill is a very, very significant issue uh, that has very, very significant follow-on effects for the people of Virginia. Yeah. And the fact that it is dying in exactly the same way without a recorded vote, whether we have Republican control of the house or Democratic control of the house, uh, you know, it just... It's, it's exactly the scenario where discharge is called for. It pissed a lot of people off, but, um, you know, it, it really got the point across that this issue is not going away mm -hmm. uh, and that Virginia Democrats need to start acting like Democrats. Yeah. Uh, we need to start actually living up to what's in our party platform and, and making life better for working people. And that includes making it easier for them to, to organize and collectively bargain in their workplace. Absolutely. Um, without getting too deep into the weeds, just quick summary, what is discharge on the, the floor of the house for our listeners? So a discharge uh, is when a member um, essentially says that the committee that's supposed to vote on a bill is screwing around and not, mm. um, not actually treating the bill fairly. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's a motion uh, that a member brings uh, that triggers a vote by the full house on whether or not the bill should be considered by the whole house. And, uh, you know, yes, that something... sounds like a nuclear bomb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think this, this may be the first time in history that a committee chair has voted uh, with somebody trying to discharge a bill from her own committee. <laughs> but uh, because, you know, Jawan Ward is an incredible supporter of labor. Of course, you know, she's, um, I believe president of the Hampton Federation of Teachers. Mm. Um, she is is dyed in the wool, organized labor, you know, from from cradle to grave, that woman lives and breathes organized labor. Mm. Um, but uh, you know the the leadership uh, is essentially just just saying uh, that it, there's no way it'll pass the Senate. and so we need to shield the Senate um, and, and fall on that grenade ourselves. Um, and that's something that I just 
don't believe in. Um, you know, when, when you're talking about public policy, the public deserves to know who the actual obstacle is. And yeah. if the obstacle is someone in the Senate, then it's someone in the Senate that needs to own their vote. Yeah, I totally agree. Like that is how we hold people accountable and get them out of office if they shouldn't be in office representing us. So I couldn't agree with you more. Um, should we transition and talk about uh, Governor Lee Carter? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So uh, the first question that I have about your run for governor is, so Virginia doesn't have consecutive terms for its governor, which is the reason why uh, current governor Ralph Northam is not seeking reelection because he can't. So my, my first question for you on this issue is if we did have consecutive terms and Ralph Northam were running for re-election, would you still be running in a primary? Yeah, probably. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, you know, you can come up with what ifs all day long. Uh, mm -hmm. Virginia having a single term limit for its governors is actually the argument that I use against term limits when people say, mm. uh, you know, oh, we need term, li term limits for Congress. Yeah. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you can always find a replacement for someone who's going to do whatever big business wants. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But when you find somebody who's going to actually take that fight up and stick it to the Amazons and Walmarts of the world, um, you want that person around as long as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. Right. And all a term limit does is give big business another opportunity to get rid of that person. Yeah. So mm -hmm. That's been that's been my pretty much exact argument uh, on this pod. Uh, I, I've I've gotten flack from some of my friends because because I because I, I totally agree with you. I don't think that term limits are the answer to uh, are, are the answer to the problem, which of course, as you pointed out, is like big business having a disproportionate amount of power. You know, it's just you know different corrupt politician, new name. Basically, like I mean, you know, same, same, uh, same corruption. Basically, um, so, so interesting. So, uh, so you probably would still be be running um, in a primary against Northam. What are some of your what are some criticisms that you would have of uh, Ralph Northam at this point? Yeah, how would you how would you govern differently? Well, you know, it's it's important to remember that I'm not from a normal background for a politician. Mm. Right. I, I'm not a doctor or a lawyer or a realtor. I'm an electronics repairman. And I got into this because I got hurt at work in the summer of 2015 and workers mm. comp screwed me over. Yeah. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I started going to delegates and senators, you know, this was 2015, 2016. I was talking to them and asking what they were going to do about workers comp. Nobody had an answer. So it was a very kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of thing. I didn't realize that that was supposed to be a cautionary tale. At the time. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I said, look, if, if this is going to get fixed, it's going to have to be fixed by someone who's lived through it. Mm. And so, uh, you know, I, I went ahead and ran. And it's the same exact sort of, of thing here where Virginia is in crisis, right? We, a lot of crises stacked on top of each other. We had a housing crisis. We had uh, a, a crisis of police violence. Um, and then coronavirus hit. Now we've got a public health crisis. We've got an economic crisis stacked on top of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it's all of these things just cascading and, and wailing on us and wailing on us and wailing on us. And I am not hearing any kind of transformative solutions from anyone else in Virginia politics that are mm -hmm. big enough for this moment. And the, and the biggest thing that I'm looking at 
is who has control over our economy? Is it gonna be big business and billionaires or is it gonna be working people? And I mean that in a very real, like very direct, literal sense where the way we've been doing economic development for decades, but it definitely went into overdrive with former Governor McAuliffe Mm -hmm. is by giving these massive corporations tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in subsidies and infrastructure to try to, to essentially bribe them into coming here. Sure. And please, oh, pretty please, Mr. Bezos, won't you give us some jobs? But you know, the, the problem is that we're just, we're cramming more and more companies into places that don't have a joblessness problem. Yeah, right? for sure. Northern Virginia does not have an unemployment problem. Northern Virginia has an affordability problem. Mm. When you're cramming more jobs in there, what you're doing is you're cramming more people in there from out of state yep. to fill those positions, which makes the actual problem that nobody can afford the rent. It makes mm. the actual problem a lot worse. Yeah, it, it makes it. Yeah, there's a housing crisis right yeah. in my neighborhood. <laughs> While all of this money is being wasted and given to big corporations that don't give back that could be used to make other people's lives better. And so as governor, I can promise you that when we're rebuilding from COVID, we're not gonna make any of these new uh, economic development deals where we're trying to, to get a massive corporation to come in from out of state. We're gonna do the hard work. We're gonna build from the ground up ourselves. We're gonna take that money that we have been spending on incentives for, for massive corporations. We're gonna give that money directly to working people. That's gonna be their startup money uh, to create their own employee-owned enterprises or to convert existing enterprises over to employee ownership. That way, when the next crisis comes, you know who's making the decision of who has a job and who doesn't? It's the people that live here and work here. Mm -hmm. It's not some billionaire who's never been to Virginia a day in his life. Yeah. Right, so we're, we're uh, the, the, the primary focus is revitalizing parts of our economy that have just been allowed to die, right? In Southwest and Southside, in, in places like, um, you know, Richmond City, Alexandria City, you know, there, there are these, these pockets of ignored people in rural and urban localities. Mm. And, and we're going to give them the money and the tools they need to start their own uh, businesses that they own and operate so that they're the ones calling the shots, right? It, it's, it's all about who has that decision-making power and who has that ownership. And, yeah. and the question, like the, the big thing that, that differentiates me from the field is I think it should be the working people of Virginia that own the economy of Virginia and literally everyone else votes to give money over to massive corporations so that Wall Street can own our economy. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's a really compelling argument. So, so one of the things I was, I was kind of worried about as we were thinking about this conversation is the dynamics, the challenging dynamics of um, trying to approach Virginia as a state with a really liberal platform when um, so much of the blue parts of the state are concentrated in, in those areas that you're, you're talking about specifically. It seems like you've got a message for both, both Virginias. You've got yeah. a message for the rural Virginia who, who, often, who probably need these policies more than anyone, and also urban Virginia. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's inspiring to hear, uh, hear you speak to both those groups so effectively. Do you think that you'll be able to like get past 
um, the biases of like a conservative um, electorate that may be suspicious of, you know, uh, a person coming in with like, quote unquote, liberal policies like this? Well, there are a lot of people who vote in absolutely every single election that have their mindset, you know, mm. they, they have their guy and yep. overwhelmingly their guy is Terry McAuliffe, mm. right? Um, yeah. And he's going to have a huge budget to throw at them to remind them that there's an election. Yeah. yeah. But this is exactly the kind of election that I won in 2017, mm -hmm. right? I was going up against a member of Republican Party leadership. He had unlimited money. He won overwhelmingly over and over and over again with very low turnout. Hmm. Yeah, he was the whip. And, and that's the key. Very, yeah. very low turnout. We have eight and a half million people in this Commonwealth. There's, I think, five and a half or six million eligible voters. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at 300,000 votes to win a Democratic primary. <laughs> that is a vanishingly small number. Mm -hmm. But we're trying to find 300,000 people who have never voted in a Democratic primary for governor, right? We're trying to find 300,000 people who already agree with me, who want that chance for a different economy, for a different future for this Commonwealth, but have not had an opportunity to actually vote for something different yet. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get them to show up for the first time and, and pull that lever uh, on June 8th, or actually ideally vote by mail so that they don't have yeah. to, uh, you know, face COVID infection. Yeah, of course. Um, so I want to, I want to get into some specific issues, your stance on some specific issues. So uh, on the issue of healthcare, um, you have said that uh, one of the proudest moments of your life is when you voted to expand Medicaid. Uh, but you've also acknowledged that Virginia still has quite a ways to go. Um, and that the ultimate goal is universal coverage in Virginia. What is the mechanism in order to get to universal coverage in a, uh, a Governor Lee Carter world? Well, you know, this, this comes from my experience growing up in a military family and, and doing five years in the Marine Corps, where healthcare, when you're on active duty, is if you're sick, if you're hurt, you go down to medical and they give you whatever treatment you need. And that's it. Like there's no billing counter. Uh, there's no debt. Everything is handled on the back end. Hmm. And there are hundreds of thousands of people here in Virginia who like, that's their reality, right? Hmm. You know, the Hampton Roads area is the most military dense area in the United States, right? So Virginians are used to single payer healthcare already. Hmm. It is a, it is a fact of life. It's the thing that um, you know, the, the civilian population in Hampton Roads is jealous of. And I know, I mean, I grew up down there. I'm from Elizabeth City, North Carolina. It's like this far across the, the yeah. state line, right? And, and so, you know, that is the end goal is getting a system for everyone where you can just go to the doctor. Radical idea. <laughs> right? right, you know, we're, we're not talking about access. We're not talking about affordability. None of these weasel words and like, mm. you know, weird metrics to determine, um, you know, who needs help and who doesn't just straight up. If you need to see a doctor, just go to the doctor and yeah. everything is handled on the back end. And that's the ultimate goal. Right. And ideally we would want the federal government to do it because the yeah. federal government is the currency issuing authority. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't have a balanced budget requirement like we do. So in times of crisis, they can, they can borrow to, uh, to keep maintaining that. Um, but if the feds are not going to do it, 
in a timely manner, which it looks like they're not. I mean, they are really dragging their feet on it. There's no reason that Virginia can't be the first one. There's no reason that Virginia can't step up and shame them into acting by being better than them. The, the analog that I use is Austria, right? If you look at the world stage, Virginia has eight and a half million people. Austria has eight and a half million people. Mm-hmm. Our GDP is like plus or minus 10% what theirs is. Mm-hmm. They have a universal healthcare system. We don't. Their universal healthcare system is the most expensive in Europe, and it's still 30% cheaper than ours. Hmm. And we don't even cover everybody, right? So there is absolutely no reason why Virginia Medicaid can't be there to, to pick up all the slack, right? To cover everything that Medicare, uh, that you know, local governments, to cover everything that's not being covered by someone else. There's no reason why Virginia Medicaid can't do it logistically Hmm. the only reason that we're not doing it right now is political so it just takes a a a mass movement of people to stand up and demand it and say we don't care who we're writing the check to right we care what dollar amount is on the check and what we're getting for it and we would much rather pay a smaller amount to the commonwealth of virginia for a better service that covers everybody than a larger amount to Aetna and Anthem and Blue Cross Blue Shield and United Healthcare and, and leave people stranded. Interesting. So, so you would support basically a Medicaid for all system in the state of Virginia. So, oh, absolutely. so, uh, you know, I was, uh, I, while, while you were, while you were talking, the, the first thing that came to my mind was, you know, oh my God, like, of course, I support a federal Medicare for all system, but could that work by states? But your, your example about Austria was, um, was that, that was a very solid example. Um, one, one sort of you know, minor pushback or minor question that I would have about that, and the reason I'm asking this is because I know that if you go on like one of the mainstream media outlets, they're going to throw this example in your face immediately, is Vermont. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that um, you know, it's often pointed out that Vermont did attempt to do a sort of in-state single-payer system, and it didn't end up succeeding. So why is it that that did not succeed, but it would in Virginia? Well, that was a political problem, not a logistical one, Hmm. right? That was repealed before it ever went into effect. Uh, So they didn't even really try, right? They they Hmm. put one foot in front of the other and said, we're going to do this. Oh, no, wait, no. Um, Actually, we're not. The price tag is, is scary. Uh, for you know, us cowardly politicians. We don't like being attacked back in our home district for trying to make people's lives better. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's switch gears and talk about um, education. So there's definitely been various different proposals uh, on various different levels, on um, the federal level, the state level, as to what to cover as far as uh, tuition goes. Um, there, I remember when Governor Northam was originally running, he was talking about covering uh, tuition-free college for community college. Um, what would your stance be on uh, how much tuition should be covered for uh, four-year university, community college, and um, the like? Yeah, and this is from people that went to uh the Virginia community colleges and Virginia universities. So this means and a also, lot. <laughs> and also someone who currently teaches at uh, three different colleges because <laughs> I'm an adjunct. Uh, well, um, you know, I, I feel sorry for you as an adjunct. I know <laughs> it's not the best working conditions. Um, yeah. Y'all need a union. 
Yeah. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Could not agree uh, but, more. <laughs> but but the the big thing is, um, you know, Governor Northam, to his credit, and and, and I I credit him very rarely. Um, but to his credit, he is living up to the promise that he made on on community college being tuition free. Um, right. So uh, the speaker put in a bill to, to advance that this year, passed through the House. We'll see what the Senate does with it. But, you know, we've got the Speaker of the House on it. We've got the governor on it. Pretty safe bet that it's going to get to the governor for a signature. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now, me personally, the, the end goal is I think that college and university should be tuition free because the product is an educated society. Right. The product is people who have open minds and people who can think critically and and actually think about the big issues that we're facing in this in this commonwealth. And we've got to get out of the the focus of, you know, just funneling people into a small handful of professions for the benefit of a small handful of corporations. We've got to get back to a more generalized, you know, making well-rounded people who are adaptable who can thrive in any role that they set their minds to. Um, and, and the way that we do that is by making uh, colleges and universities tuition free. Um, but looking at K-12 education, you know, how we get people to that point mm. is also incredibly important. Um, and the biggest change that I would make to our K-12 education system is actually a very, very small change in language. It's two words. I would delete the words seek to from Virginia's constitution. Now in the section on education, it says that we will seek to provide an equal education to all Virginians. Uh. (laughs) Get rid of seek to and make it a mandate, right? Mm. No more wiggle room. The Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, if we we pass this constitutional amendment, the Commonwealth of Virginia will have a requirement to give an equal high quality education to every child in Virginia. Well, right. The big, the big issue there is the fact that, I mean, education is paid for primarily with property tax. So if you live in a nice neighborhood, your school's going to have more funding. But if you live in a neighborhood of more, you know, a, a low income neighborhood, then like the quality is going to be crap. Well, that's something that would have to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's something that when you change that constitutional language, that system is no longer tenable. Mm-hmm. And so you're talking about decoupling uh, education funding from local property tax revenues, because Virginia is the most economically unequal state in the union. Hmm. We have the wealthiest county in America, Loudoun County, mm-hmm. and we have some of the poorest down in Southwest. And um, you know there are school systems on both sides of the urban-rural divide, Richmond County and Richmond City. Hmm. Right? They they don't get much more different from each other, but both of them are struggling to keep their schools operational and, and give kids a good high quality education because yeah. they don't have that local property tax base. So if you change that language in the constitution, then suddenly the general assembly has a legal requirement to step up and make up the difference, right? We have to increase the state share of funding, especially for those struggling schools. We have to bring those schools that are, that are failing, those schools that are crumbling, we have to bring them up to par. And if we don't, then we get our pants suit off of us. Mm-hmm. No longer optional. There's no more kicking the can down the road if you do that. It's pretty compelling. 
So I had a couple of questions about criminal justice and policing, but I want to, I think I want to focus on like the police side of that. So my, my question is kind of, is, is this, um, so you're currently on the policy and public safety commission. Um, not anymore. Not anymore. Oh, no. pardon me. <laughs> no, Formally. I'm on finance, transportation and county cities and towns. Gotcha. So, uh, taxes, trains, and people cutting their grass. <laughs> 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 Pretty exciting stuff. Um, but uh, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as as governor, like, how would you seek to um, change or or reform um, the system of policing in Virginia? Um, I, I'm thinking specifically of like over the summer we saw some some really um, strong responses to protesting. I'm thinking specifically of Richmond. We had a a friend of our show who was tear gassed on his front porch. Um, and so just, just in general, like, how do you approach reforming police in Virginia? Well, the United States incarcerates more of its people than any other country in history, mm -hmm. in history. Now, NPR would disagree on whether or not, uh, you know, um, uh, in-home incarceration uh, counts as incarceration. I count it, they don't, mm. but um you know, the point remains, whether you count that or not, we're either first or second yeah. in history. And that's abysmal. And the overwhelming majority of those people that we incarcerate are locked up by state courts, mm -hmm. not federal, which yeah, exactly. means the states have the authority to roll that back, right? We have the authority to make that change without asking permission from the feds. And, and the focus on locking people up means that police and prisons eat up more and more and more of our budget every single year. Mm. And they get more and more divorced from the reality of what people actually need. And they get into this us versus them mentality where police by and large in America, and Virginia is no exception, mm. view themselves as separate from the public. They view the public as something to be managed, to be controlled, not to be served. Right. And, and we saw that in very, very real ways over this past summer. I, I personally dealt with it. Right. I, you know, when the protest broke out at the end of May, um, I actually got uh, a bunch of messages from my constituents saying, come down here at the corner of Sudley and Sudley Manor. The Prince William County Police and the Virginia State Police are shooting rubber bullets at people. They're firing tear gas at people. They're flashbanging people. And so, you know, I, I, I called ahead of time, right? I, I called a member of the board of supervisors and said, let the police chief know I'm coming down there to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Radio ahead. All right. I get there about a block away. There's a cop blocking traffic and I mm -hmm. go up to him. I identify myself. I say I'm delegate Carter. Uh, I've heard some disturbing reports about what's going on one block up. I'm going down there to see what's going on radio ahead and let them know I'm coming. And he did. He radioed ahead. He let him know I'm coming. I get down there. And the first thing that I see is a cloud of tear gas. And I can, mm -hmm. I can feel it in my throat. Right. And, and firsthand experience here, I can tell you, George Bush's tear gas tastes exactly the same as Ralph Northam's tear gas. Uh. Right. So I get down there and I'm mad as hell because the, the, the county police swore up one side and down the other. No chemical agents have been deployed. We don't even have rubber bullets. Um, you know, none of, none of these things that you're hearing are happening. And I get there and they're happening, hmm. right? So 
I go up to the line, I identify myself, I hold up my ID badge, I say, I'm a member of the General Assembly, I radioed ahead, I want to talk to whoever's in charge and find out what's going on here. And they just, they just stood there and looked at me for 90 seconds. I, I, I found the video, it was 92 seconds between when I got there and when a flashbang grenade detonated at my feet. Wow. That was the first of three, right? Wow. Um, they, they hit me with shields twice. They hit me with three flashbang grenades, two while I was walking away and they pepper sprayed me right in the face. Wow. All because I went down there to ask them what they were doing to my constituents. Mm -hmm. So police in this Commonwealth and in this country really don't think they have to answer to the legislative branch. Yeah. And the legislative and, branch has given them absolutely no reason to. Yeah, they largely haven't. They've, they haven't answered in a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the response from the General Assembly was saying, we're going to give you a bunch of new rules to follow, but we're going to trust you to follow them. Mm -hmm. We're going to increase your budgets to help you follow them. And we're going to give you a nice hefty bonus for pepper spraying a member of the, a member of the General, General Assembly. Right. Um, and Josh Cole got similar treatment. Um, down in his district in, in mm -hmm. Fredericksburg. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't the only one, right? And, and that's got to change. That has got to change. Um, so the, the very first thing that I will do as governor is I will start an audit to make sure that any and all white supremacist or white supremacist sympathizers in our law enforcement agencies are gone, mm -hmm. Right. Um, the, the FBI reported five years ago now that white supremacist organizations were deliberately infiltrating law enforcement throughout the country, right? So we're going to do what the military does. We're going to check people's tattoos. We're going to check to make sure that you don't have, uh, you know, SS lightning bolts hiding under your collar. We're going to check to make sure that you don't have, um, you know, any of these visible signs. We're going to look at, at their social media and we're going to make sure that they're not out there, um, you know, expressing these, these white supremacist views on social media. Um, there was actually, there was a, a, a Prince William County Sheriff's uh, deputy that worked quite literally half a mile away from my apartment. I can see where he used to work mm -hmm. that got doxxed as a white supremacist and immediately fired, right? And, and that was like a month ago. <laughs> so, these folks are out there, they're in law enforcement agencies, and we have got to get rid of them first and foremost. That is priority number one. Priority mm -hmm. number two is after we've gotten rid of all the white supremacists in the ranks, we need to evaluate exactly what it is we're asking police to do and whether or not those things make sense to have somebody with a gun doing it. Mm -hmm. Does it make yes. sense to have somebody with a gun writing traffic tickets? Mm -hmm. Does it make sense to have somebody with a gun dealing with someone who's in withdrawal from heroin? Mm -hmm. yeah. Does it make sense to have somebody with a gun doing welfare checks or, or being the first person to interact with someone who's in a mental health crisis? I don't think so. I think that the presence of someone with a gun in all of those scenarios makes matters worse and more dangerous. And so we're going to take all of those things that don't make sense for police to be doing, we're going to take them off of the police's plate entirely. Mm -hmm. And we're going to reroute the funds that we've been giving to the police to do them. And, and we're going to stand up new agencies that are tasked with doing those things that are staffed by experts in doing those things. Mm. It's, it's a wild concept. It's a really <laughs> crazy concept. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Having experts do things that they are good at. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I do think it's interesting how when something is not the current system, no matter how much sense it makes, like when you talk about changing it, everyone just thinks you're crazy. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but like, but yeah, no, that's super reasonable. Um, I, I, I love that. Uh, so the last area that I wanted to very briefly ask you about is the issue of guns. So uh, in the state of Virginia, uh, approximately a thousand people die every year due to gun violence. Um, on the other hand, approximately 30% of Virginians are gun owners. So how do you make sure that you are not, you know, infringing on the rights of gun owners while at the same time, you know, fighting to solve gun violence? Well, I own three myself. Yeah. Right. I so, own about that many too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, if, if there's one thing that Marines know, it's guns. We yeah. are, you know, the, the government makes every single Marine a subject matter expert on the subject of firearms. And unfortunately, that experience has taught me that there are a lot of people writing firearms policy on both sides of the issue that have no idea what the hell they're doing. Yes. But they I are could not 100% agree. <laughs> convinced they are right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I took office, yeah, there were, there were a lot of things that needed to change to make people safer, right? We didn't have a universal background check system. We didn't have safe storage requirements. You know, there were loopholes that allowed... Uh, convicted domestic abusers to get yeah. their hands on firearms, yeah. right? And so we've 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 closed up almost all of those loopholes now. Um, now there there are members of the Democratic Caucus that are still working on finding them, and if they do find one that exists, then yeah, you know, absolutely, bring me the bill. Uh, if it's if it's a loophole that needs to be closed to keep people safe, then I'll close it. Yeah. But the number one thing in my mind is whether or not it impacts people's ability to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. So there are periods in history where political violence is a bigger risk than at other times. And I think that we're in one of those times, yeah. right? You know, the, the Nazi attack on Charlottesville, mm-hmm. the Nazi attack on Richmond, the Nazi attack on the U S Capitol. This yeah. keeps happening. It's kind of a trend, yeah. Right. Um, you know, there are these extreme right-wing organizations that target people based on real or perceived affiliation with the other side in politics, or that target them based on the color of their skin, or yeah. on who they love, or on what they believe, right? And, and they're targeted for violence. And yeah. so the, the driving force in, in my decision-making when it comes to firearms is, Anybody that a Nazi would want to murder should be able to stop the Nazis from murdering them. Yeah. Again, a radical and simple (laughs) idea. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And and so, you know, so I I promote safe, responsible gun ownership among people who are in those targeted classes, right? Activists, uh, communities of color, LGBTQ folks, um, union organizers, right? So, so. All of those folks, I think, um, you know, if if this is an important if, if they feel comfortable having a firearm in their day to day life, then I feel they should be proficient yeah. in using a firearm safely, storing a firearm safely, and they should have one so that they can defend themselves and defend uh, their their neighbors and their families. If God forbid a mob of Nazis shows up on their doorstep, mm-hmm. yeah. Um... 
Yeah, I, I've I've echoed similar sentiments on this pod. One of the things that I've said, as as someone who is a Democrat but also a gun owner, um, is the only thing scarier than a world where only cops and criminals have guns is a world where only cops, criminals, and conservatives have guns. <laughs> um, so you know, I I it is really nice to to see a um to see a Democrat number one making decent. Uh, gun control arguments, but also making decent arguments um, for responsible gun ownership as well. Uh, so that's that's it's, really awesome to see. It's the one position that's guaranteed to piss off everyone, <laughs> <laughs> except especially except, in except, Virginia. Except, yeah, right. yeah. Except me. Like the you're you're. Um, yeah, I, I might be one on. of the few. Uh, I might. Yeah, we might be some of the few people that that's not going to piss off. But, but you uh, know, I, I hear it all the time from my colleagues um, when when we're discussing these bills. I'm like. Um, you know, what, what am I going to do as someone who receives assassination threats like clockwork, yeah. you know, what, what am I going to do if this passes? And the answer is always call the cops. Well, I've identified that some of those assassination threats are coming from cops mm. and there were no consequences. So wow. why should I trust the cops if there are some cops among the group yeah. that I need to protect myself from? It's just, it's not logical. Um, and, and unfortunately, there are people that are just so set in, yeah. uh, on the Democratic side, set in the idea that guns are automatically bad and no one should have them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the Republican side, set in the idea that guns are automatically good and there should be no restrictions on them. Yeah, and yeah. It's like, y'all are both just absolutely off the rails, ideologically driven and completely ignoring the reality of people's day-to-day lives. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow, somehow guns has become a moral principle that people apply just f- like full stop. No, yeah, it, it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, it's, it's to the detriment of the Democratic Party's prospects that, sure. that we keep doing this, right? Yeah. Um, you, you look at where the Democratic Party holds office in the General Assembly. It's the cities and the suburbs. Where does it not hold office? Rural areas. Yeah. Why does it not hold office in rural areas? Even, even though you know, those places have long storied traditions of high union density, mm-hmm. yeah. right? It's because firearms are, are an important component of people's lives once you get out of the city centers, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a way for people to put food on the table. It's a yeah. way for people to defend themselves against people who would want to hurt them. It's a way for people to defend themselves against wildlife. Yes, exactly. I used to live, I used to live outside a hay market and mm-hmm. I came home from work one day and there was a bear in my driveway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's an experience. A lot of people have like, yeah, no, and growing I, up in more rural Virginia, that was, was Prince William one, County. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that was one of the most common arguments I heard against Democrats even even before like economic arguments it would be like well they're gonna take my guns away and i need those yeah yeah Yeah. and you know you look at places in in far southwest virginia Mm -hmm. the the heart of coal country yeah and and you ask them what they think about unions and to a person almost every single one of them will say oh my granddaddy was in a union right but what did that union do Right. That that union went on strike and brought rifles to the picket line <laughs> to make yeah. sure that the, the National Guard and the Pinkertons didn't come and crack skulls. 
Yeah. Right. That was like the very real way of protecting themselves against retaliation from the government and from the employers when they went on strike for their rights to a safe workplace. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying to take that away from people. Yeah. 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 It, it just doesn't make much sense. Yeah. And that's why the Democratic Party can't connect with people hmm. um, who, you know, my granddaddy was in a union. My daddy was in a union. I would love to have a union job, but they're not here anymore. And you yeah. say, okay, well, we'll give you a union job, but you got to give up your guns. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Just cut the second half of that off. We'll give you a union job. <laughs> yeah. And you can Absolutely. keep your guns. Yeah, they don't follow all the way through. On, on, on <laughs> right? The, the economic populism all the way through to like the civil populism. All right. Uh, we have been talking to former uh, Marine and current delegate of the Virginia General Assembly representing the 50th District and uh, current candidate for governor, uh, Lee Carter. Uh, delegate Carter, thank you so much for joining us. Um, best of luck on your campaign. And if you enjoyed what you heard from uh, Delegate Carter, uh, his website is carterforvirginia.com. Um, Mr. Delegate, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thank you so much for having me. Man, that is a great, great interview. I was like, I was, I'm, <laughs> Lee Carter's the best. <laughs> I'm really yeah. impressed. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was, it was great. Yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and end our podcast with some of our highlights. So, yeah. Michael, what were your highlights of the week? So, so for me, it's that I've been teaching Bree to ski. So we went skiing this past weekend, um, and also then also the weekend before, and she loves it. It was I was like nice. so happy and impressed. Skiing, for those of you who don't know, is a, a relatively recent but like a passionate uh, hobby of mine. And um, I was like really worried that Bree wouldn't like it because she doesn't really like the cold and skiing's in the cold. But she like took to it like. I don't know, an animal that skis. She was just a total natural, and it was awesome, and we've been having a great time. So now I can't wait for next season. That's What great. about you, Nathan? That's nice. My highlight this week is that one of the first speeches uh, for some of my university students mm-hmm. uh, happened this week, and they were just really good. Like, they were, they were impressive. They were interesting, and I was, you know, I was so proud of my students. Uh I was so happy. Like I, it's, it's so nice. It's a nice experience as a teacher to just see your students really thrive mm. with a major assignment. And, you know, it just, that's, that's why we do it. You know, that's, that's why we do it. That's awesome, dude. And congratulations. Yeah. That's I'm sure in yeah. large part to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so if you've liked, listen to this episode, if you've liked the previous episodes of The Perspectrum and you want to support us, uh, head on over to our Patreon page. You'll get access to not only um, our resources, which we'll uh, give to everybody, but also you'll get access to our fun post-pod conversations that we have every time we do the show. And so with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum. You'll hear from us again next week.